tampon. Thought I'd ask. You seem like you might be plugging. I assume I need no introduction. Oh, what do you want? I want the throne. Hello, and welcome to Curiosity Killed the Cat. I'm Sarah, your host, and today we are going to be discussing villains all over again. Because if there's one thing we know about bad guys, it's that, you know, apparently you just keep going back. I wouldn't know. I've never dated a guy with a with a black leather jacket and like a chain and like a cool motorcycle. Pretty sure I'm describing Arnold Schwarzenegger from Terminator, which... I would like to pick a villain from Terminator and do one of those, but, uh, you know, who do you choose? Do you choose the, like, liquid molten level, uh, metal T-1000 that was in Judgment Day that was, like, the creepy fucking cop with, like, the knife sword thing and he could run really fast? Or do you go with, like, Skynet, you know, that's just, like, basically the cloud, whatever you want to call it, you know, just watching everybody from above sky net they're watching from above and one day they're just going to drop the net down on everybody and um the robots will come they'll take over and villains will run the damn world they might already be doing that so today we are not going to be talking about any kind of robots we're not going to be talking about arnold schwarzenegger anymore we're not going to be talking about t 1000s or two 1000s i would love to talk about terminator salvation it's a great movie don't at me about it um so today we are talking about three different very um distinctive villains here they are all uh, very different from each other and um i would have liked to do about five of them like i did part one and part two but um, me and my cousin did uh, one of these one of these bad guys, and uh, we we talked about him for quite some time, and it worked out because uh, she's she's read the book, and I watched the film a million times, so we kind of did a little a little take on that. So this went above and beyond the description <laughs> descriptions uh, of the villains that were in part one, part two. Those were probably about like. I don't know, 10, 15 minutes a piece. So these ones are going to be a little bit longer. Um, I'm going to be getting into Jennifer Check from Jennifer's Body, um, Lestat from Interview with a Vampire, specifically the film, but that's what my cousin's going to be joining me for, and uh, she's read the Anne Rice novels, and we're going to go back and forth with that. And to top it all off, the cherry on top, Killmonger, Eric Stevens, from Black Panther. Um, these three villains couldn't be uh, more different from each other, yet the one thing about villains that is always um, fun to look at is their deep need for self-preservation. You know, we've talked about Voldemort. He had to make like seven versions of himself and hide them in like little tchotchke trinkets everywhere um, because he just was so afraid of like dying and I don't think necessarily all of um, these characters here, their main drive is like self-preservation. Um, you know, we get into Killmonger. He was uh, a 
basically a left behind child. He was a forgotten prince, uh, so to say. Um, and he just wanted to go back to his freaking home country and freaking challenge Black Panther and be king. You know, that's not a whole lot to ask for. But um, there was a nice long road he took to get there. And everybody for him seemed to either be a pawn or somebody that was just like in his way. So his need for self-preservation um, basically seemed to be his journey, you know, leaving Oakland to get to Wakanda, whatever he had to do to get there and challenge and try to get on that throne, get the vibranium, get it out of the country, do all the things. Um, you know, it seems like his drive to, to, to stay alive to get to that point just surpassed just about anything. And then he might have just gotten a little bit too comfortable the second he sat on that throne. Um, can't judge him. He had a nice, cozy, like, robe on and some, like, cool pants. And he was chilling. He wasn't chilling. He was getting ready to fucking take over the world. But, um, yeah, so that's his kind of need for – that's what I picked up on. Um, you look at somebody like Jennifer Check from Jennifer's Body. Um her need for self-preservation, well, my goodness, if you haven't seen the movie, turn back now. Um, she is sacrificed so some douchey band can get more famous. And sh they assume that she's a virgin because she acts like she's not one. So they just automatically, they're just like, oh, well, if she acts like she's not one, which what I don't even know what that means. How do you not act like a virgin? Um they just automatically assume that she's lying and she has to be one. And so, you know, when she comes, I don't know, in the movie, she's pretty honest with her little, her little jabs and her, her poppy kind of humor and her, her sort of one liners. Um, she's sort of unaffected in a sense. And when she comes back, her, her self-preservation is geared towards having to eat to the boys in order to have her skin glowing again, have her hair full and bouncy like she just stepped out of an Herbal Essence commercial from the 90s. And it's Megan Fox. So when they make her not so cute looking because she hasn't fed, you know, when she's literally kind of like, um, I guess if she didn't feed, she'd probably die. And so her need for self-preservation self and to stay at like her best self is to continually uh, feed upon the young men um, at her school and that are in town. And so that's sort of, you know, her need to survive is there's a, a vanity to it, but there's also like her self-possessed like body and spirit that comes back after she's like sacrificed is like um, she's just a, a an entity that wants to be at the top of her game at all times. Um, so we're going to get more into Jennifer. And then to get into uh, Lestat a little bit, he's from Interview with a Vampire. He's a vampire. Um, I don't think you have to get into a whole lot when it comes to a vampire's need for self-preservation. You drink the blood, you stay alive. Kind of similar to Jennifer in the sense that like Jennifer probably could have stayed immortal and like godlike or demon-like if you want to go there. Um Except, you know, she she meets her she meets her end uh, at the, the climax of that film. But Lestat, he has a few climaxes when it comes to uh, almost not being alive and not keeping uh, his self uh, 
preserved for very long. Um, his like death scene in uh, the film is very intense because uh, and we obviously we're going to be getting into it, but um, as a vampire, he's his throat has been slit. He's drank dead blood, and he's you know rolled up in this you know canvas tarp, and his his former companions dump him in the swampy waters of the Mississippi and you see this alligator going into the water and you're like wow this is very um straight out of Goodfellas like I'm surprised we didn't chop the body up and then dump it into the Everglades here um so this alligator crawls into the water and I don't know if they even show any, like, blood or anything, but they kind of show the body sink. The alligator gets in, and then his companions, you know, go off to this false sense of security. And, um, yeah, that was their mistake because that alligator didn't eat the dead vampire body. Lestat still had life in him yet, and he fed on all of the life putrid life of the Mississippi he drank blood from the alligator and slowly but surely over like I don't know it must have taken a, a few days um he goes from being basically a dumped dead body in the Mississippi River swamp to having feasted on this alligator and whatever gross things are crawling around this freaking swamp water and he gets himself out he gets himself back and he's ready for fucking revenge okay so his self-preservation is just kind of like a you know i will survive it's very gloria gainer it's very um it's just the 70s song which i love the cake version of it um if you in case you were wondering um so Lestat, he's pretty cool because vampires are pretty crafty when it comes to staying alive. It's like, yeah, you could suck blood and stay alive forever, but um, there's other factors and obstacles that go into the life of a vampire. And so the fact that um, they trick you there, they really think that like he's going to be gone and they don't even show, you know, it's it's the alligator. It's, it's good. It's just really good. So that's his, that's his, he's got a vengeful self-preservation. Um, with a very uh, big flair for dramatics. And yeah, so he is going to be super fun to get into. We've got lots of freaking information on him, on Tom Cruise playing him. Um, super excited to talk about Michael B. Jordan playing Eric Killmonger. He just, I can't even, it's perfection. He's one of the best He's one of the best Marvel villains ever. He could be the best one. Um, I know everybody's always like, oh, he's just like, he's just, he's almost as good as the Joker. Um, They're two totally different deals. We've discussed the Joker. Um, Eric has, Eric's the man with the plan. But when it comes to um, just being like uh, the actor being just, completely self-possessed by this character um Michael B. Jordan is just uh connected this 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 character just flows through him the same way Lestat flows through Tom Cruise in this odd way we definitely get into like how random it is for Tom Cruise to play a vampire um 
And uh, for somebody like Michael B. Jordan, you know, he, I guess for the most part, had played mostly good guys. You know what I mean? Like he had a lot of definitely positive, um, there's a lot of positive attitudes, uh, a lot of positive attitude about Michael B. Jordan. Um, He's definitely a celebrated actor that um, I think is only going to get like higher and higher in terms of uh, uh, leveling up as an actor and as a a creator and all of that wonderful, um, all that wonderful stuff. And so, um, you know, when you take an actor who, again, has a lot of positivity, like, associated with them, and then they play somebody who is so viscerally bad, but then you understand why they're bad. Oh, it's so good. It's such a push and pull when it when a freaking bad guy just pushes and pulls and pushes and pulls, it just makes you feel so complicated inside and you can feel all of the just the black and the white, like good, bad, all swirled together. And it's a big tornado of just grayness. And uh, dude, when it comes to freaking Jennifer, uh, Megan Fox playing Jennifer, you want to talk about somebody who is self-possessed, who is fucking in sync with the person she's supposed to be portraying. Um, You know, there's been a lot of talk about Megan Fox lately. Um, I've always thought that she was freaking fantastic. I don't ever remember her doing anything like wrong or bad. She's just like, kind of like that hot girl that I don't know, kind of got dumped on. It happens sometimes. And it's not like boohoo, the pretty girl, but like, you know, she did get shit on and she kind of got like blacklisted for, I don't want to say blacklisted, but she kind of got like, she kind of got slapped on the wrist a few times because she spoke her mind about some of the people she worked with and not that she was ever really saying anything like super bad. She was just literally like probably saying stuff that like, I don't think anybody else would like not agree with in terms of onset behavior or attitudes and um you know when you look like Megan Fox and you have um a seemingly self-assured attitude not not conceited self-assured um you know that's I think it's when you understand uh what you're looking at in the mirror and you probably understand that other people are going to pick up on it when you walk down the street and she carries that with her um She's carried that with her very well throughout the years. And um, her and Diablo Cody have a wonderful interview from like last year. And they get into all about why Megan was chosen for Jennifer. How Diablo was just so fucking happy that like Megan was a part of it. And um, how, you know, she always had her in mind. And it's great. All of these actors deserved all of the Academy Awards. There's only one you can get at a time. But... They deserved all of them. And um, it's going to be quite a ride, you guys. So thank you for tuning in and um, buckle up. I am going to eat your soul and shit. And boy, does she ever. Jennifer Check means a lot to a lot of different 
people over the last, I want to say, 10 years or so. This movie went from, Jennifer's Body, of course, went from being panned, marketed completely wrong, and totally flopped, which was a super bummer because it was written by Diablo Cody, the uh, screenwriter of, Oscar-winning screenwriter of Juno. And so after she made that film, she got her Oscar, she was given lots of money and lots of creative freedom to make her next film, and it was Jennifer's Body. And she was super stoked, she was so excited, she wanted to uh, show a friendship between um, a needy type of a friend and a self-possessed, you know, bombshell, uh, self-assured type character, and uh this movie really showcases um, the relationship between the two. And that was her deal. She was super excited about it. And then the uh, <laughs> the studio heads were like, we need more Megan Fox hotness. And we're going to market this to, to like, uh, you know, frat boys and all of that stuff. And um, for a movie that's kind of about, like, female rage being unleashed and having this, like... Um, uh, possessed uh, body of Jennifer, Megan Fox, coming back to life. Um, I just don't think a whole lot of, like, younger men were, like, really wanting to see a beautiful girl um, desecrate and eat young men. And so this movie took a hard right turn towards Flop Town, um, and it seemed like it was a, uh, kind of a big bummer for... Um, for Diablo, um, Megan Fox was probably just like, what's new? You know, what's new? That Megan Fox has a fucking all-star champion attitude about everything that's kind of been um, sort of dealt her way that um, I think that's the reason why Jennifer Check is like this almost like symbiotic um, thing with Megan Fox. It's not that like... You're watching Jennifer and you're like, oh, that's Megan Fox being Megan Fox. It's, it's, there's something inside of Megan that, uh, clearly was, um, connected to this character. And rather than like, again, you seeing just the actor portraying themselves or playing up their strengths in terms of their, um, timing and their line delivery, (laughs) she is like, if you took a big fat pack of Pop Rocks and dumped it in your mouth and then drank a 12-ounce Coca-Cola, that's that's how fast and fizzy and snappy and poppy each line she delivers. It comes out of her mouth, and you're so busy trying to figure out the first thing she just said that you don't even get to the second thing that she said. Um you know what? This is interesting. I heard about uh, Jack Nicholson referring to his Joker part as uh, he considers it as a piece of pop art, which is really fucking cool. I never thought of like actors making pop art with their performances in film. And that kind of blew my mind. I was really excited and really stoked about, um, I don't know, that sentence. I, I just, the fact that, um, you know, you can be an actor and rather than just delving deep into a role and being really good at it, you can turn it into this sort of performative um, pop pop art style piece. And I think 
that is what happened with Megan Fox. It was like the perfect time in her life where she was probably just over playing certain types of characters. She got this well-written script and she knew she could just let herself fly. And her and Amanda Seyfried, who plays her needy best friend, who's literally named Needy, Anita, a.k.a. Needy, um, their relationship together is very interesting because they're in such a small town called Devil's Kettle that, like, the popular girls and the unpopular people, it's not that they don't really, like, there's not, like, big groups of them. It's just, like, you've got Jennifer, you know, who's, like, Marilyn, and then you've got Needy, who is just, like, Oh, man, how do you even describe Needy? Needy starts off as kind of like a Jan Brady-esque character. And she really turns into her own. Um, when she goes through all her drama with Jennifer, she really comes out the other end, uh, I want to say, just as strong and just as self-possessed and just as... Um, dude, her vibes at the end of the movie are so great. It's almost like Jennifer's, like, in her. Um, so, anyways, it's a good... It's a good I like their relationship a lot because it's not like um, Jennifer just pushes Needy out of the way when it's time to be popular. Like I said, it's just the school is so small that it, it there's the dynamics aren't even like like that. They're just best friends and they are kind of frenemy-esque. And um, yeah, Jennifer, before she gets, um, you know, turned, she's quite a like a a picker you know what I mean she's kind of like that friend that just says little jabs here and there where you're kind of like was that fucking necessary um but she does it anyways and I don't think she ever really means harm from it and uh you know as we get more into Jennifer Check and the actions that lead her into turning into a uh demon teenage cheerleader um I just think of, yeah, her personality that they show in the movie leading up to this um, turn is more than just your typical, like, snobby, mean girl. There's a vulnerability there. It's not, you know, you get that kind of sort of, like, self like, hmm, how am I wording this? There's a slight Regina George-ness to it, but it doesn't go full-on, like, in-your-face can't be you know it's she's more subtle and um yeah we're gonna be getting into that I'm gonna be talking with my sister here and we are going to be discussing what makes Jennifer so fabulous what makes her a great villain and um oh I also talked to uh one of my sister's friends as well so I've got a couple clips coming up from them and um yeah this is gonna be a really fun uh fun dive into uh, Jennifer check. All right. I'm joined with my, well, not joined with, joined by my sister, Kelsey. We are not conjoined twins. We are two separate entities born three and a half years apart. So yeah. Hello. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a long time since I've seen you. I know. Have we met before? I don't know. I don't know if I know how to talk anymore. I drink coffee at 10 o'clock at night for like the second night in a row. And I feel like that's not going to have, I'm going to start looking like Jennifer when she hasn't eaten any of her boys. (laughs) (laughs) That can be taken many ways. Yeah, I was going to say, hmm, 
Sounds mm. like a chicken nugget deal you can get. Can I get the five piece? Uh, mc- can I get the number two with some mac sauce? I know, with a with a side of uh, with a side of teeth and hair, and guts. Ew. Well, that's what she does. I know, and the, she's and our the... goriest. Well, ooh, Lestat's kind of villain, but out of Killmonger, Lestat, she's the most gory. Would you say? Even though it's not the goriest of horror films sure because she i think is the most gory element of she it takes and i know a lot that sounds a little simple and obvious but like when you think about it she really is yeah the goriest part about the movie she, herself she, she leaves those guys pretty icky like she leaves them almost the yeah. way like it leaves his victims just completely yeah wrecked. chip chip uh got it good i just keep thinking about the cute little emo gothic kid oh i know gray colin gray did i remember <laughs> that, it right i put that as my favorite part though like my favorite moment is not him dying but when he asks her to hang out or whatever and um he says um something about like you want to go see rocky horror or whatever and she says something about she doesn't like boxing movies <laughs> i just can't even yeah. take it. And he's so turned off at that point. He's oh, like, he literally for walks sure, away. Sure, but he's and still like, going well, for it. But then, exactly. And I also. Those red flags. But it goes flying. so deep. That moment goes so deep because then, as soon as Needy says, why didn't you ask him out or why didn't you go out with him or something, um, and explains that she would have done it. That's when Jennifer has interest in him. Oh, yeah. That's when she is her most Regina George-esque, which yeah. I don't, like, Kelsey wants to get into, uh, you bring up the word. Frenemy. Territory. Um, and I kind of wanted to get into, like, our plastic Heather Mean Girls and how I feel like Jennifer deviates from that, mm-hmm. from, from them in terms of, like, there's a slightly, there's... A, a, she's a bit more deep. Those characters tend to be a little dense, as clever as they think they are. They're more Cersei-esque. And I would say Jennifer is, uh, you know, she's not a rich girl. She's obviously the most beautiful, popular girl in school, but she's not like, um, you know, that's where her privilege lies, I would say. Is where? Is in her, you know, her pretty popular yes. high school her attractiveness yes too and her charisma. dominating spirit right and intimidating spirit shall we say oh very intimidating She's intimidating before she even becomes a succubus <laughs> oh like okay so. so we are gonna get we're gonna we're gonna kind of kick off to where her and her best friend needy go to this sad rock show at like the devil kettle is the name of the town and they go to, uh, do you remember the name of the bar? Do they say what it is? Oh, yes, they do. And I don't remember. Oh, no, it's I don't something. Remember, it's something but... clever. Diablo Cody. She's too good. She never misses and an opportunity. Something, I almost started crying because my sister gave me no warning for this whatsoever. I don't think she even thought to give me warning. But, like, uh, they, they go to this bar. They go to see this, like, awful emo band that's headed by Adam Brody, who is a whole deal we're going to get into. He's really the true villain of the movie. Really, honestly, the band is the villain of the movie, mm-hmm. and we'll get into that. Um, 
But they go into the bar and, you know, Jennifer's giving Needy the whole, like, you know, pick out one of these motherfuckers, you know, uh, what does she call her boobs? She grabs, she grabs Needy's boobs and she's like, point these in the right direction and, um, mm-hmm. smart bombs, mm-hmm. smart, smart bombs. bombs. That's right. yep. <laughs> and so as she's doing this, she's, you know, walking through the place and she's saying hi to everybody and fucking Chris Pratt pops up out of nowhere. And it's been a rocky road with him the last couple of years, but, uh, He's forever, like, dear in my heart because of Parks and Recreation and Everwood. Is mm-hmm. that the name of the show? I almost said yep. Everclear. Yep. Um, that was a 90s band. Huh. Why'd you have to remind me of them? Um, but anyways, yeah, uh, and yeah. Everwood. I would buy you a new okay. car. No. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so she fucking has this hilarious banter with him because if there's anything he can... Pl- I would like to see him and her... In something again mm-hmm. because I think if there's anybody who can hold up to her fucking pizzazz it would be somebody like a Chris Pratt um and so anyways I just oh my god I almost lost my shit because this would have been a movie one of his kind of first dish movies because this is a 10 year old 11 year old movie at this point so Kelsey what happens next needy and Jennifer uh what is it that the band starts thinking about Jennifer and Needy? What is the, the argument? Vir- the what? virginity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how do we feel about boys speculating whether girls are virgins or not? Uh, uncomfortable. But I just don't think it's anybody's right to speculate on someone's virginity, whether they're male or female. So. And for for me, I feel like this is the first part in the movie where something, this is the beginning of, uh, I feel like, her sacrifice. It's the beginning of something getting taken away because no matter what a girl says or how she acts, um, you know, they think just because Jennifer is, um, you know, making more like sexual remarks talking about how she's experienced and needy is you know the virgin here she's been with her boyfriend for a while she hasn't slept with him yet but may or megan um jennifer has been around the barn a time or two she's had a good time and she's not shy about it she is not shameful about she's it not even a backdoor virgin she's not even a backdoor flipping virgin and so <laughs> to you quote, see to quote jennifer and that is a quote and i want to say that's probably the most heather like Heather like uh, Heather esque uh, line, and so then we start getting the band speculating on this. They're just like, is is the one the virgin? Is the one not the virgin? Blah blah blah. And it's just so gross and it's so icky. And you're already just you're taking in a uh, something away from somebody that they haven't even given you yet. You know what I mean? And in a very fantastical movie where a lot of it's very unrealistic, there are some really raw realistic moments where like that is something two men discussing um you know the sluttiness you know or the promiscuousness or the lack thereof exactly another person let alone like a, a young teenage girl and yeah you have no idea little miss turtleneck for all we could have known because i was kind of speculating with my sister because i was like i feel like they're pulling the american beauty thing where like in that movie the girl that you know acts like she has experience and that she's more promiscuous and she's not apologetic about it turns out to be an actual virgin and that ends up being a big hang-up in the movie and so i think that was maybe diablo cody giving a little play into that but also just showing you that like 
Just not cool, dudes. Not cool, okay? Homegirl in the freaking turtleneck sweater could be, like, down for a good time every night with who she wants, whenever she wants. And, you know. Yeah, and do I think in real life that, you know, the two men speculating um, or group of men speculating on virginities or not are going to be sacrificing? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. at the end of the night? You know, that's not... So the reason, though, yeah, that they're not just besides being gross dudes, they are speculating um, which one's the virgin because what do they want to do with the virgin? They want to sacrifice her. So they could get famous in the mid to, in the early 2010s. One of the best parts is when Adam Brody says that they should, like, do you want to be Maroon 5 famous or something like that? And they have guy liner on. Mm Mm-hmm. They're wearing all black, but not, like, cool Johnny Cash black. This is douche boy black. They just, like, Adam Brody did such a good job at portraying. It's, okay, okay, ready? He's so clever. Yeah, exactly. It takes cleverness and it takes actual talent to play. A lot of people like to comment that, like, oh, my God, the dumb blonde in, like, like Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde. Like, that could have been... um, perceived as easy to play a bimbo but it's not but not like that so much smarts and talents uh talent to to actually do that and like the drunk girl same thing or like play without making it a character right you yeah it seems like it would be easy and it's not and so i feel like adam brody with that douche lead singer character it could be like oh well that's easy he's written as a douchebag who sacrifices this chick to be famous but like he clearly put in some effort yes that's why his villainous role is so good because he's they're unapologetic about it it's like dumb group of dudes very very proud about it yeah the van boys that's what we'll call the name of the the band they're the van boys so the band boys the van boys after like you know jennifer's just like looking at the band and she's like i'm gonna like go home with one of them she sort of gets like in this weird sort of trance-esque type vibe and ends up going off with the van the band in their creepy van and you know what shout out to all all of the people out there who have vans that aren't creepy yeah i'm not gonna ever judge you on your van you mm-hmm. ride that van there amen was a, <laughs> there was a funny bumper sticker that was like listen bitch <laughs> like this isn't a creepy van and it like listed all these other things that were like creepy and that's it's not vans funny. and i was like that's great um so i digress they take sweet sweet Megan Fox. I'm going to just say Megan Fox because the way she described um, being in, you know, on this part of the set and filming this scene, you could see she was going through something as they were filming it. Because this is when we get to the sacrifice. They are getting her ready. She's in her, again, her puffy little early 2000s crop, freaking ja- crop like jacket yeah. and a denim skirt and like little booty shoes. And, you know, it's straightened hair. So she's just like this classic high school, you know, early 2000s girl where like the fashion seeps into like a few years later. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. like some high schools sort of get left behind. And so, man, they it, this scene's tough. It's a tough scene. They start sacrificing her by literally just stabbing the shit out of her. But can we talk about the salt on the wound is 
they humiliate her even more by oh, singing yes. Jenny Jenny. <gasps> but, uh, oh but my eight, six, god, seven, I forgot. Five. Yeah. That's the most villainous moment. That that this is the grossest moment in the film. There's no kill that Jennifer does that tops what these actual true villains of the film do. Yeah, when because they, they turn her into the worst version of herself or the best or is she living her best life? I don't know. Right. It's up for debate. That is the debate. So, um, yeah. So from that point on, yeah, like Kelsey says, she's getting ready to get stabbed and uh, they start singing 8675309. You know, Jenny, Jenny, Which is what's a your number? person named Jennifer would be your worst nightmare, I am sure. I have a friend who I can, has that name, Jennifer, and I know that would have been just triggering uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> call my therapist <laughs> yeah so speaking of therapist poor jennifer is gonna need one after this so she's left for dead but she ain't dead she comes back do we see any like transformation thing or is she just like stumbling through the street the next? most transformative moment i think we see of that like transition of her um after the sacrifice or whatnot is um just the moment when needy sees her in her kitchen mm-hmm. and in her house like that's the most you kind of watch her evolve for a couple minutes because i and I, she's she's very um sort of stiff at first yeah she loses exactly. it almost seems yeah. like she yeah almost uh what's the word rigamortis it's almost oh, as if her yeah, body yeah. did die for a few hours or something oh yeah right but she, she eats. And she's she a eat, type of she eats the in my the, the international exchange student mm-hmm. on the way to Needy's house, mm-hmm. right? Okay, mm-hmm. and then she's still hungry because she's like eating mm-hmm. the shit out of the fridge. Or was it after? I was gonna say, was it? Yeah, Needy's house. Yeah, she might have gone because straight she to was, Needy, because and then because this is the thing. This is a very key part. Is that when she goes to Needy's house in the say? kitchen? she's searching for food actual food in the refrigerator so she's instinctually hungry but she doesn't know what she can eat yet so she's like sad drunk girl hungry she eats the chicken and realizes by vomiting the spiky black weird (gasps) vomit shit oh my god that um, that ain't gonna work she discovers that she needs to eat something she literally smells needy it, you think for like mm-hmm. a second she's gonna maybe turn on Needy and eat her, and then she like goes away. And so maybe that see, scene she's a is nice after. Friend. Maybe that scene is after. Um, uh, you know what? That makes that makes a lot more sense. Like yeah, but but I feel like she said it was after, um, the bar or after low shoulder. So I don't know if that part's a little yeah. fuzzy, but still, I know the significance of her looking in the fridge eating the damn chicken is to not just tell the audience but to tell her new in like her new body and what she has to do like she's, what she's basically do. like one of the the next villains we might be discussing captain barbosa she <laughs> can eat the food but she can't oh man i can't even do it i was gonna yeah. get all piratey yeah. i was about to say i can't taste food nor yeah. drink what does he say nor he says to feel the warmth, warmth of, of a, a woman's, woman's touch, touch. <sighs> Yeah, we got to do Barbosa. Yeah, because he's a fucking, great villain. Uh, and Jeffrey Rush is one of the most underrated actors of all time. And Jack Sparrow is like the true villain of. Yeah, he's of very it, really much good, like, for the you know. 
he yeah he's he kind of blurs the lines but for the most part he is a villain he's the reason why the whole boat goes down anyways we're not here to talk about this but we could if we wanted to because it's you know (laughs) it's my life it's now or never that's some bon jovi for you um you're welcome you're now oh man i almost went into moana can we go back to the frenemy subject for Yes, a please. Yeah, I want to hear what you have to okay, say about that. Because Jennifer Check, in my personal opinion, whether you love her or hate her, that's kind of the point is that you love and hate her, um, is that she is the ultimate fucking frenemy. The ultimate frenemy. There is no definition more than her to me and needy as frenemies. Um I put in this note, I put she's manipulative and charismatic at the same time. And she hooks people in by making her attention feel special and personal, only to be cunning or mean or vicious. So, like, basically she hooks them in, she makes them feel special, and then she either, um, you know, kills them with a fucking humiliating joke or Mm -hmm. belittling them, or she literally eats people. So... You know. It's kind of interesting how right before she died, she was, like, humiliated pretty bad. I yeah. wonder if that's, like, something that transferred to when she kills the boys. Because I would say when it comes down to Colin Gray, she, I think she says some pretty crappy things to him. Mm-hmm. And to me, that, besides her getting sacrificed in the woods, that's the scariest kill, I feel mm-hmm. like. Because I felt like, I felt like... You could feel his, um, like I said, like the red flags going up one by one by one by one. And he just just still stays. And you feel like he might just be the smart guy that like just gets out of there. Oh, and she kills the one jock. That was really sad. Yeah, the jock. He didn't deserve that because obviously he was gay for the friend friend that died in the fire. Would that have been Chris Pratt? No. Oh, okay. See, I personally, okay, I've done no research Chris on this Chris Pratt would have been at high school. He's a gross older dude. No. Okay, exactly. never mind. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no, oh, okay, yeah. No, he wouldn't have been in high school. Um, He he was, she Ryan literally Reynolds says. Ryan Reynolds from Adventure Park. She literally okay. says, um, Jennifer um, says when they're at the bar before the fire and everything to him that um, he hasn't fin- finished the police academy yet. And so he's going to be a cop. Okay. And she later says in the film, I'm fucking a cadet, remember? Like, I have the cops in my, like, wrapped around my finger, basically. She should have called him Burt Macklin. So, personally, I have not done any research on this. There is no evidence whatsoever, but this is my personal theory. I think Chris Pratt was meant, I think he survived the fucking fire. Or there was a scene before he died in the fire with that, them again. Oh, yeah. But he had to have that had cut or something. some kind of cut scene. Because the way they slip in that moment of her just reminding you, oh, it's okay because the cops are wrapped around my finger because I'm fucking a cadet. She's talking about Chris Pratt. And it's like, but I, you know how many times I had to see that before I even paid attention to that line? So it's a little confusing. Yeah. And I think they cut. I think they might have had to cut a scene out for him because of course he wasn't the chris pratt at the time but he was still chris pratt he was like right before andy dwyer so um question back to like the frenemy thing so when uh you know jennifer does say she both goes both ways so she like at one point she ends up in needy's bedroom and you get to see the world famous trailer and every preview and every piece of marketing that this fucking film had to deal with 
This is when you get the fucking kiss kiss, you know, kiss kiss a uh, scene. And so with them being like frenemies, whatever you want to call it, they're, they're not frenemies. They're best friends. But I, Jen, I call Jennifer kind of like a, a digger, a picker, you know, like she just like, you know, when you tell your kid, stop doing that and they do it one more time. But then they might just do it one more time. It's like, it's almost She's like way she worse than that. That's, in my opinion. Yeah, that's true. Again, you guys, you I've only seen it one and I've only seen it one time. So I need to right. see it again through her filter because um, I was one of those people that just like, I was like, well, I don't know, maybe someday I'll see it. Cause I love Diablo Cody. And my sister was just like, uh, you gotta watch it. You gotta watch it. You gotta watch it. And then I just kept seeing just like, you know, just things about Jennifer body and Megan Fox just popping up everywhere. And it was like, all right, it's time. The time is now the time is nigh. And we did it. And it was one of the best experiences, movie going experiences I ever had. And so, um, yeah, the movie just, mm, it deserved a lot more than the uh, shitty marketing it received. And so, um, and we like get in, the backlash too. And the backlash for it. It's like you just see this out of context sort of kiss, and you see, you know, the most beautiful starlet there is. And yes, they make Amanda Seyfried, um, you know, not as pretty as she normally is because she's the needy character. But, like, you don't know that when you see the preview. You've seen Amanda Seyfried in Mean Girls, and you've seen her in a couple other things with her long, beautiful blonde hair. And so this preview, this little tiny sliver of the movie that you see is just beautiful Megan Fox and beautiful freaking Amanda Seyfried going into Kiss. And it's so much bigger than that. And I wonder if, like, besides just this kind of being, like, an iconic bi moment, um... Do you think maybe she was going to be getting ready to fucking eat needy? No. Or do you think she was just kind of just playing around? I just being her. She was testing waters, testing boundaries, trying to have, you know, I think it's all calculated with her. I think she was trying to get a hold on needy in another way. She was like that song. You really got a hold on me. You know, and. Um, I had put something about the only true vulnerable moments that Jennifer has is in the van with low shoulder and uh-huh. like the sacrifice and very specifically when the BFF necklace comes off. When is that? That is the very moment she, st- she, oh, yeah. she takes off the necklace needy and distracts rips her. the necklace off. And I feel like part of that necklace gave them power. And had yeah, power connect- on Jennifer. Yeah, it kept their connection. It kept exact. It was almost the protection a shield she for needy. Had. Yes. Yeah. And and a shield she for bellied, Jennifer. She bellowed. But also like Twilight a shield for Jennifer. Um, you know, having needy's friendship yeah. and that necklace. Oh, was like Harry Potter's shield. mom too. She takes that off, aka reveal, uh, ripping off to her shield. Makes her vulnerable and she stabs her right in the heart. Yes. And she had to stab her. Like the whole point of Jennifer, Jennifer had to die. It's okay. Rest in peace, sweet demon angel. Right. We'll see you in the next realm. Um, But the coolest thing is, is that um, her best friend, whether, you know, whatever their relationship was like towards the end. Yeah, Needy had to fucking end it. But uh. Needy comes back and she fucking she uh she comes through for Jennifer at the end. She gets hashtag mm-hmm. justice 
for Jennifer, and this was before, like, hashtags were big, but I felt like if this movie came out now, it would be, like, hashtag justice for Jennifer. Um, because, uh, yeah, she goes after the fucking douche lords that killed her, okay? She was murdered in the middle of the woods by a freaking white privilege band that just wanted freaking MySpace fame. They were tired of having Tom as their only friend, and they were ready to switch up that top eight. And uh, Needy gets out of her freaking locked-up asylum where she gets put away after she stabs Jennifer because everybody's like, oh, my God, she killed her beautiful best friend. And uh, she goes back, and she takes the knife that they used on Jennifer, and she uses it on them, and it's all being filmed right by, like, a video, like, a Mm -hmm. phone camera or something Mm -hmm. like that. A really crappy pants to security cameras oh, and it's so great and they're like in a fancy hotel and crime scene photos yeah. and stuff yeah um any yeah any uh what else did we miss anything um i was going to say something when you were talking about Oshulger. oh we need to talk about the fact that um jennifer is manifested into needy yes. by the end of the movie because of the bite yeah i think i referred to it as like a so uh transference yeah so needy before she stabs her jennifer does bite her where does she Mm -hmm. bite her on the shoulder you said (gasps) she bites her low on the shoulder (laughs) (laughs) i'm pretty sure it was the shoulder it was high on her shoulder but whatever that is if if she literally did if if diablo cody did that on purpose that's her chef's kiss in the movie but um but yeah, it almost seems like Jennifer uh, became the scar tissue of this wound and that she is like like how Voldemort ends up in Harry, like a horcrux. Jennifer, bits of Jennifer live within Needy now Which in the best why way. she's feisty in the asylum. Yeah. And she's bitchy and she's a little a bit kicker. vain. She's vain. She's, you know, happy to have all Remember of her. Remember when Beatrix Kiddo was called a spitter? I bring up Beatrix yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. But, so she's a kicker. She's a mm-hmm. kicker at this hospital. Yeah. <laughs> what would you rather be, a kicker or a spitter? I'll tell you one thing. I'd rather be a kicker because but, yeah. I don't need a... You have strong legs. But I don't want a reason to be a spitter like Beatrix had. You know what I mean? <sighs> well, Beatrix was in a coma. That's my point. Yeah. I don't want to be in a coma no, yeah. and spitting out. You mean you don't want to get shot in the head when you're so, pregnant at your wedding and by your ex-old while lover? While you're in a coma? Ugh, trigger warning. Sorry. It's okay. We did talk about... Oh, I did talk about Bill. I say we a lot. Like, I'm just like... It's the truth. Beatrix went through a fucking lot, but we'll talk about her sometime, you know? Yeah, we will get... You know what? When we do Heroes, we'll talk about her. Okay, because since I talked about Bill. Yeah, so anyways. Um, Jennifer Check is iconic. Jennifer Check. Megan Fox Jennifer is Check iconic forever. more specifically. Yeah. Jennifer Jennifer Fox. You should Megan, check, yeah. Megan Fox's performance literally deserved an Oscar. Bam, done, said it. Bam, done. Uh, last thing, Diablo Cody. Megan Fox asked her in this in this cool interview. She said, you know, kind of what made you pick me for this role and she was almost like scared to ask it you could see this flash of vulnerability in megan fox's spell binding eyeballs and diablo is just like well i was needy and i was my name was brooke and i decided to be something different and i decided to be a stripper and just 
be a little bit more assertive with myself. And that's how she wrote Jennifer. And apparently she had Megan in mind the whole time because she was just like, you have something that, um, that, 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 uh, smart girls understand other people might get jealous of other people might try to put down or discount. Again, I don't want to be like boohoo pretty girl, but like, um, you know, I think Megan Fox is a gem and she should be treasured. And I would like to see her in all sorts of different fun roles. Mm-hmm. I'd like she to has s- a lot more range than people give her credit for. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see her kind of sub... She's kind of as poppy and fast as she is. She's a little subdued sometimes mm-hmm. in this movie. She's a little chill. So with that, that's Jennifer's body. Um, I implore you to look at the 2019 interview with her and Diablo. I think it's like uh, from Extra. It's on YouTube. But uh, it gives you some great insight as to, uh, into like the marketing of the film and uh, how she felt writing it and all of that stuff. It's really good. So, yeah, that's Jennifer Check. Thank you, sister. That's my, si- my sister. Talk about frenemies. Am I right? Ask me. Take him away. Ungubani! Indinku Indidaka! I think I'm good and ready to get into Eric Killmonger Stevens. Um, it's not actually his name. It's Najatika. He is a prince of Wakanda, son of Najabu, nephew to T'Chaka, cousin to T'Challa. Okay, what I think is kind of cool about Black Panther, T'Challa, and Eric, Killmonger, is that their fathers are brothers. We have T'Chaka and we have Najobu, and I'm doing my, I'm pretty sure I'm saying those right. I've only seen this movie about 500,000 fucking times. So, um, it's interesting that the two brothers, you know, their names are pretty different from each other. We've got T'Chaka, Najobu. They don't really sound all that much alike. But then their sons get names, uh, are named almost quite after them. Like T'Chaka, T'Challa. Hey, that ain't that different. But uh, when you look at um, Eric and his dad, um, it, there's that N apostrophe uh, J. So Najatika um, and Najobu. So I thought that was kind of interesting that both of these brothers sort of passed down um, kind of like their whole names for the most part to their kids. And um, before we get into the whole villainry of uh, Killmonger, Killmonger, I keep saying Killmongerer, and that's not what it is. Um, so, hmm. One thing that's kind of funny is the dynamic between, you know, our hero and our villain here, whatever you want to call it, because Black Panther has a lot of stuff he has to answer for. He has to answer answer for um, a lot of the things his um, his dad, you know, obviously did against his brother and leaving behind Eric. We'll get into that. Um, but the moment that uh, T'Challa sees Eric and he, you know, before he even sees that ring dangling from his neck, it's like he fucking knows. Like he just knows like 
oh, I feel like he knows, like, that's my family, man. And they have this, like, almost instantaneously, even though they're not together for quite some time, you know, until Eric shows up in the, the throne room and all that stuff and challenges him, um, you know, it's just like they have this cousin they have this cousinness already. Like, especially a boy-cousin type relationship. Girl cousins are fun. We can all be, like, bitchy and silly. We can, like, laugh and fart all at the same time and, you know, still want to, like, I don't know, do other fun, I don't even know, girl things. I don't even know what girl things even means. Um, But anyways, back to those two. Um, That would have been you know, if everything would have gone properly in the beginning of this film, you know, I'm going to talk about the opening scene. Um, if everything would have gone right, you know, in a parallel universe, perfect world, you know, Black Panther, T'Challa, and Eric probably would have been really, like, they would have had a good cousin bond. They probably would have been competitive as hell, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, they both have that alpha energy. Um, but, Anyways, that's sort of where I wanted to start with this, I guess. You know, we're just kicking off with the with, with cousin shit. So, <clears throat> and I'm bringing up cousins because I come from a really, I don't know, pretty large family. My dad has nine brothers and sisters. My mom has four. Not quite as big, but you can imagine the trickle-down effect of all of those people and their children and their offspring and their offspring's offsprings. And it's just, you know, and then, then you move into freaking you know, blended marriages, and then you've got stepkids and stuff, and then just, just like the whole family tree just becomes this big giant bush. It's a big shrub. And of all of these, you know, fun, um, you know, different people that um, all come from kind of the same people, which is so fun about family. And uh, one of the devastating things about this movie is um, the family dynamic that happens between T'Chaka, Black Panther, back in the early 90s, and his brother, um, who I would love to refer to as Randall from us, uh, Sterling, Sterling K. Brown, who is a fantastic actor. And to see him as kind of like a bad guy, but an understandable bad guy there, just <clears throat> in the beginning, um, is a pretty cool character, devi- not deviation, because he played, jeez, um, <clears throat> before... I think before us, that show on NBC, um, he was in the Ryan Murphy, the OJ Simpson one, and he played the, uh, one of the attorneys, one of the prosecutors. What was his name? Chris Darden? I want, oh my God. I'm going to fact, I'm going to fact check it. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get back to you on that fact check, but, um, I will figure out if that's the proper name. Um, but he played, you know, this lawyer that's trying to put who he thinks is a killer in jail and um you know Randall I've only seen like the first season of us and he's just a good dude and so again to get back into like how Michael B. Jordan you know had all of these um positive attributes to him um and people just seem to kind of adore him just from all around he's I don't even think he's just in an American sensation here anymore he's just like He's becoming a, a global sensation. He's just be, he's just A plus plus, um, and he's just really exciting to see what he does with his work. And so um, Sterling K. Brown again typically seems to have these more sort of positive roles, 
and for him to like, you know, you see him and you're excited to see him at first. And then, uh, when his brother comes, you know, with his Wakandan freaking, uh, oh man, I'm going to, hmm, the door up. I have it written down. When he shows up with his bodyguards, um, he confronts his brother about trying to get out their secret technology, vibranium out into the world. And, um, you know, Njobu pretty much just tells him, like, you have no idea what it is like here. Like, he's in Oakland in 19, I think it's 1992 or 1994. I can never get, those two years are interchangeable for me. I can never get them right. Um... I was born in 87, so those are kind of hazy for me. Um, so, you know, anyways, um, you know, they start getting this confrontation and, hit, you know, Black Panther is pissed about this. This technology is supposed to stay in Wakanda. It, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sacred thing. And he, their, and their biggest belief is, you know, it's not their business what goes on around the world. And, um you know, Sterling K. K. Brown is just trying to freaking serve him with the actual knowledge and the actual tea and said, you know, is like, again, you don't know what it's like around here. Like it's over police. They're underprotected. There's, you know, people like us all over the world. Like, um, it seems like Wakandans have like almost the whole, uh, I think I mentioned this before, like in the nineties, you know, there was this whole narrative of like, we are all part of the rainbow and there's no color and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Life is what you make it. And it was just sort of this really odd narrative to kind of like push on to kids. It's like, yeah, don't ever judge anybody by the color of their skin. Like who gives a fuck? But like, also you can't discount somebody's experience because it will be slightly different than yours. You know, I'm just, I'm just a fucking, I'm just a white chick. You know what I mean? So it's like, I can't, how do you, how can you tell a, a girl like that growing up to not see the color of the people around her? You're just discounting their experience. You know what I mean? It's like, that's what friends are for. So you bond and you tell stories and you share things and you can, you can learn from your friends around you. And so Wakanda has a sort of like in the movie, I'm, I'm not too sure about the books, but like, you know, when Eric shows up, they're like, you're an outsider. You're not one of us. Like, fuck this shit. Like, yes, I'm sure there's lots of, you know, uh, black people around the world that look like us that are suffering and maybe need some help and don't have the proper tools to, to fight their oppressors and whatnot. But like, we're different. We're Wakanda that's not part of our problem. And so Eric, you know, to go back to him for a minute, that's a huge point he makes, you know, when he walks into the throne room for the first time, when he um, comes back from challenging uh, T'Challa, Black Panther, and going back into the throne room again, and just letting loose what his full-on plan is, you know, he's letting them know that, like, you guys have been in this protective country, you've been, um, in this place of privilege, and, you know, a lot of other of us, a lot of us are not experience anything like this out in the world, so why don't you step it up a little bit 
and, you know, I don't know, reach out, touch faith, you know, like the Depeche Mode song, start sprinkling some of that vibranium around in positive ways. So that way people can, um, see what a wonderful country Wakanda is, see how their technology of vibranium has put them like, they're literally, it's literally probably the coolest city, like in the world. Like I thought Asgard was pretty cool, like up in outer space, but like fucking Wakanda, just like hiding, like in Africa like that, like on the continent, like just, when you just like, all of a sudden you're just there, you know, you go through like that weird invisible, like, uh, oh my god, cabin in the wood border, like, screen thing, the hologram, and you're in Wakanda, it's beautiful, you've got this, like, downtown-esque city, and the buildings are pretty, and the mine where the vibranium is, is super badass, and so, you know, you could imagine, like, other cities like this, on even a smaller, bigger scale, whatever, would be super beneficial all around the world, and if, when we get back to the beginning of Eric Killmonger, if he could have just found a different way, a less angry way, whatever, maybe that message could have come across, but it didn't. It happened the way it happened. And what he does with T'Challa, with Black Panther, by the end of all of this, you know, even with the violence and even with Killmonger dying in the end, uh, T'Challa changes his point of view. He understands it's time to open this country up. It's time to stop isolating and it's time to see where my cousin has fucking been, you know, go see where he grew up. Go, go step in his shoes for one second. Go to that building. Imagine what it would be like, you know, and here we go. We're starting Killmonger's journey. You know, Black Panther needed to get to that building, step in the shoes and imagine what it was like to be a little boy looking up, seeing that cool freaking ship come, stay for a minute, few minutes and take off. And he goes running upstairs to his freaking apartment and his dad is dead. Oh, with one of the best quotes he says in the movie, um, the panther claws in his freaking chest. And so that's a very visceral like violent image for um a small child like that to see even though he is in you know um they talk about being in this kind of city of violence you know um he tells his dad later when he's in his little uh black panther uh I don't know acid trip heart flower dream thing he tells his dad like you know it's just that's life around here people die all the time so he's just you know he's fucking he's cheated by a tiny little age and you can see what the catalyst is and again every villain has something that starts it all and your path you know it your path can ebb and flow in terms of going to the darker side going to the lighter side if we want to do the jedi sith thing um but you can always come back towards the good you know darth vader did it so can you. And so, um, you know, he Killmonger, he does get, he softens up at the end once he has a <clears throat> giant fucking sword through his, oh, I don't know. What's that area between your like heart and like your stomach, like right in the middle of your rib cage, your sternum. I don't know. He gets, he gets cut pretty bad, man. And, um, so 
yeah, he's just this little kid. He's left behind. He is the blood of Wakanda. They don't get into his mom. Um, it's, when I was looking up some of the comic book stuff about him, it said that it even said that his mom was unknown. And I think I saw that once, maybe twice. So let's just go with it for now. Um, which is kind of a bummer. Like I was talking to my sister and I was like, so the whole thing about Eric would be, he's not a kid that was born in Wakanda, you know, to Najobu and then like left for America. Like he was clearly born to an American mom. Well, she doesn't necessarily have to be American. We're a melting pot. She could be anything. But, um, he obviously had a child with a woman here in America. And, um, so I don't know what his, I don't know what his life would have been like once his dad's dead. Again, we don't know anything about his mom. So what the fuck happened with Eric between that? Okay. And <clears throat> let me just look up his, uh, his education here. Okay. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. So yes, I want to know what happened between him getting left behind, seeing his dad in that apartment, and uh, grad school at MIT, Annapolis by 19, the SEAL program, he was in a special, uh, some special op deal, and ended up in a ghost unit, like, the craziest, gnarliest stuff that he could do, that's what, that's what he was doing, and so by the time he got to, um, Oh, yeah, it says when he was uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, the the amount of kills he got there uh, is what's contributed to his name. He got Killmonger for the basically the amount of kills. And as you could see in the movie, his uh, chest and his arms are scarred for every single, uh, basically every kill he gets. And so... Ooh, it would have been so cool if they would have shown him doing a scar for T'Challa after he throws him off of the ledge and he thinks that he's dead and he's like, I'm the king now. Fucking deal with it. Um, Surprise, bitch. This episode is to be continued. If you go right into the next one, you're going to get the second half of Eric Killmonger and the whole discussion about Lestat the vampire. This episode went way too long and I didn't want to make anybody fall asleep. So yes, like I said, go right into the next episode and you will get the rest of wonderful Killmonger and Lestat. Thank you.